Chapter Seven, Part One of the Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. One morning in November of the same year, Laura joined her husband at breakfast, preoccupied and a little grave, her mind full of a subject about which she told herself she could no longer keep from speaking. So soon as an opportunity presented itself, which was when Jadwin laid down his paper and drew his coffee cup toward him, Laura exclaimed, Curtis! Well, old girl? Curtis, dear, when is all this going to end? You're speculating? You never used to be this way. It seems as though nowadays I, I never had you to myself. Even when you're not going over papers and reports and that, or talking by the hour to Mr. Gretry in the library, even when you're not doing all that, your mind seems to be away from me, down there in La Salle Street or the Board of Trade Building. Dearest, don't you know, I don't mean to complain, and I don't want to be exacting or selfish, but sometimes I, I am lonesome. Don't interrupt, she said hastily. I want to say it all at once, and then never speak of it again. Last night, when Mr. Gretry was here, you said just after dinner that you would be all through your talk in an hour. And I waited. I, I waited till eleven. And then I went to bed. Dear, I, I, I was lonesome. The evening was so long. I had put on my very prettiest gown, the one you said you liked so much, and you never seemed to notice. You told me Mr. Gretry was going by nine and I had it all planned how we should spend the evening together. But she got no further. Her husband had taken her in his arms and had interrupted her words with blustering exclamations of self-reproach and self-condemnation. He was a brute, he cried, a senseless, selfish ass, who had no right to such a wife, who was not worth a single one of the tears that by now were trembling on Laura's lashes. No, we won't speak of it again, she began. I suppose I am selfish. Selfish nothing, he exclaimed. Don't talk that way. I'm the one. But, Laura persisted, some time you will get out of this speculating for good. Oh, I, I do look forward to it so. And, Curtis, what is the use? We're so rich now we can't spend our money. What do you want to make more for? Oh, it's not the money, he answered. It's the fun of the thing, the excitement. That's just it, the excitement. You don't know, Curtis. It is changing you. You are so nervous sometimes, and sometimes you don't listen to me when I talk to you. I can just see what's in your mind. It's wheat, 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 all the time. <laughs> if you knew how I hated and feared it. Well, old girl, that settles it. I wouldn't make you unhappy a single minute for all the wheat in the world. And you will stop speculating? Well, I, I can't pull out all in a moment, but just as soon as a chance comes, I'll get out of the market. At any rate, I won't have any business of mine come between us. I don't like it any more than you do. Why, how long is it since we've read any book together, like we used to when you read aloud to me? Not since we came back from the country. By George, that's so, that's so. He shook his head. I've got the taper off. You're right, Laura. But you don't know. You haven't a guess how this trading in wheat gets a hold of you. And then what am I to do? 
what are we fellows who have made our money to do uh, i've got to be busy I, I can't sit down and twiddle my thumbs and i don't believe in lounging around clubs or playing with racehorses or murdering game birds or running some poor helpless fox to death speculating seems to be about the only game or the only business that's left open to me that appears to be legitimate i know i've gone too far into it and i promise you i'll quit but it's fine fun <laughs> when you know how to swing a deal and can look ahead a little further than the other fellows and can take chances they daren't and plan and maneuver and then see it all come out just as you had known it would all along i tell you it's absorbing but you never do tell me she objected i never know what you are doing i hear through mr court or mr gretry but never through you don't you think you could trust me i want to enter into your life on its every side curtis tell me she suddenly demanded what are you doing now very well then he said i'll tell you of course you mustn't speak about it it's nothing secret but it's always as well to keep quiet about these things she gave her word and leaned her elbows on the table prepared to listen intently jadwin crushed a lump of sugar against the inside of his coffee cup well he began i've not been doing anything very exciting except to buy wheat what for to sell again you see i'm one of those who believe that wheat is going up i was the very first to see it i guess way back last april now in august this year while we were up at the lake i bought three million bushels three million bushels she murmured why what do you do with it where do you put it he tried to explain that he had merely bought the right to call for the grain on a certain date but she could not understand this very clearly never mind she told him go on well then at the end of august we found out that the wet weather in england would make a short crop there and along in september came the news that siberia would not raise enough to supply the southern provinces of russia that left only the united states and the argentine republic to feed pretty much the whole world of course that would make wheat valuable seems to be a short crop here everywhere i saw that wheat would go higher and higher so i bought another million bushels in october and another early in this month that's all you see i figure that pretty soon these people over in england and italy and germany the people that eat wheat will be willing to pay us in america big prices for it because it's so hard to get well, they've got to have the wheat it's bread and butter to them oh then why not give it to them she cried give it to those poor people your five million bushels why that would be a godsend to them jadwin stared a moment oh that isn't exactly how it works out he said before he could say more however the maid came in and handed to jadwin three dispatches now those said laura when the servant had gone out you get those every morning are those part of your business what do they say i'll read them to you he told her as he slit the first envelopes they are cablegrams from agents of mine in europe gretry arranged to have them sent to me here now this is from odessa it's in cipher but he drew a narrow memorandum book from his breast pocket i'll translate it for you 
He turned the pages of the key book a few moments, jotting down the translation on the back of an envelope with the gold pencil at the end of his watch chain. Here's how it reads, he said at last. Cash wheat advanced one cent bushel on Liverpool buying stock light. Shipping to interior. European price not attracted to sellers. What does that mean? she asked. Well, that Russia will not export wheat. That she has no more than enough for herself so that Western Europe will have to look to us for her wheat. And the others? Read me those. Again Jadwin translated. This is from Paris. Answer on one million bushels wheat in your market, stocks lighter than expected and being cleared up. Which is to say, she queried, they want to know how much I would ask for a million bushels. They find it hard to get the stuff over there, just as I said they would. Will you sell it to them? Maybe. I'll talk to Sam about it. And now the last one. It's from Liverpool. And Liverpool, you must understand, is the great buyer of wheat. It's a tremendously influential place. He began once more to consult the key book, one finger following the successive code words of the dispatch. Laura, watching him, saw his eyes suddenly contract. By George, he muttered all at once. By George, what's this? What is it? she demanded. Is it important? But all absorbed, Jadwin neither heard nor responded. Three times he verified the same word. Oh, please tell me, she begged. Jadwin shook his head impatiently and held up a warning hand. Wait, wait, he said. Wait a minute. Word for word he wrote out the translation of the cablegram and then studied it intently. That's it, he said at last. Then he got to his feet. I guess I've had enough breakfast, he declared. He looked at his watch, touched the call bell, and when the maid appeared, said, Tell Jarvis to bring the buggy round right away. But, dear, what is it? repeated Laura. You said you would tell me. You see, she cried, it's just as I said. You've forgotten my very existence. When it's a question of wheat, I count for nothing. And just now, when you read the dispatch to yourself, you were all different. Such a look came over your face, so cruelly eager and triumphant and keen. You'd be eager, too, he exclaimed, if you understood. Look, read it for yourself. He thrust the cable into her hands. Over each code word he had written its translation, and his wife read, Large firms here, short and in embarrassing position, owing to curtailment in Argentine shipments, can negotiate for five million wheat if price satisfactory. "'Well?' she asked. "'Well, don't you see what that means? "'It's the European demand at last. "'They must have wheat, and I've got it to give them. "'Wheat that I bought, oh, at seventy cents, some of it. "'And they'll pay the market. "'That is, eighty cents for it. "'Oh, they'll pay more. "'They'll pay eighty-two if I want them to. "'France is after the stuff, too. "'Remember the cable from Paris I just read? "'They'd bid against each other.' Why, if I pull this off, if this goes through, and by George, he went on speaking as much to himself as to her, new phases of the affair presenting themselves to him at every moment, by George, I don't have to throw this wheat into the pit and break down the price, and Gretry has understandings with the railroads, through the elevator gang, so we get big rebates. Why, this wheat is worth eighty-two cents to them. And then there's this curtailment in Argentine shipments. That's the first word we've had about small crops there. 
Holy Moses, if the Argentine crop is off, wheat will knock the roof clean off the board of trade. The maid appeared in the doorway. The buggy? queried Jadwin. All right, I'm off, Laura, and until it's over, keep quiet about all this, you know. Ask me to read you some more cables some day. It brings good luck. He gathered up his dispatches and the mail and was gone. Laura, left alone, sat looking out of the window a long moment. She heard the front door close and then the sound of the horse's hoofs on the asphalt by the carriage porch. They died down, ceased, and all at once a great silence seemed to settle over the house. Laura sat thinking. At last she rose. It is the first time, she said to herself, that Curtis ever forgot to kiss me good-bye. The day, for all that the month was December, was fine. The sun shone, underfoot the ground was dry and hard. The snow, which had fallen ten days before, was practically gone. In fine, it was a perfect day for riding. Laura called her maid and got into her habit. The groom, with his own horse and crusader, were waiting for her when she descended. That forenoon Laura rode further and longer than usual. Preoccupied at first, her mind burdened with vague anxieties, she nevertheless could not fail to be aroused and stimulated by the sparkle and effervescence of the perfect morning, and the cold, pure glitter of Lake Michigan, green with an intense mineral hue, dotted with whitecaps, and flashing under the morning sky. Lincoln Park was deserted and still. A blue haze shrouded the distant masses of leafless trees, where the gardeners were burning the heaps of leaves. Under her the thoroughbred moved with an ease and a freedom that was superb, throwing back one sharp ear at her lightest word. His rippling mane caressed her hand and forearm, and as she looked down upon his shoulder she could see the long, slender muscles working smoothly beneath the satin sheen of the skin. At the waterworks she turned into the long straight road that leads to North Lake, and touched Crusader with the crop, checking him slightly at the same time. With a little toss of his head he broke from a trot into a canter, and then, as she leaned forward in the saddle, into his long, even gallop. There was no one to see, she would not be conspicuous, so Laura gave the horse his head, and in another moment he was carrying her with a swiftness that brought the water to her eyes, and that sent her hair flying from her face. She had him completely under control. A touch upon the bit she knew would suffice to bring him to a standstill. She knew him to be without fear and without nerves, knew that his every instinct made for her safety, and that this morning's gallop was as much a pleasure to him as to his rider. Beneath her and around her the roadway and landscape flew. The cold air sang in her ears and whipped a faint color to her pale cheeks. In her deep brown eyes a frosty sparkle came and went, and throughout all her slender figure the blood raced spanking and careering in a full strong tide of health and gaiety. She made a circle around North Lake and came back by way of the Lynn Monument and the Palm House, Crusader ambling quietly by now, the groom trotting stolidly in the rear. Throughout all her ride she had seen no one but the park gardeners and the single grey-coated mounted policeman whom she met each time she rode, and who always touched his helmet to her as she cantered past. 
possibly she had grown a little careless in looking out for pedestrians at the crossings for as she turned eastward at the la salle statue she all but collided with a gentleman who was traversing the road at the same time she brought her horse to a standstill with a little start of apprehension and started again as she saw that the gentleman was sheldon corthell well she cried taken all aback unable to think of formalities and relapsing all at once into the young girl of barrington massachusetts well i never of all the people but no doubt she had been more in his mind than he in hers and a meeting with her was for him an eventuality not at all remote there was more pleasure than of embarrassment in that first look in which he recognized the wife of curtis jadwin the artist had changed no whit in the four years since last she had seen him he seemed as young as ever there was the same elegance to his figure his hands were just as long and slim as ever his black beard was no less finely pointed and the moustaches were brushed away from his lips in the same french style that she remembered he used to affect he was as always carefully dressed he wore a suit of tweeds of a foreign cut but no overcoat a cloth cap of greenish plaid was upon his head his hands were gloved in dogskin and under his arm he carried a slender cane of varnished brown bamboo the only unconventionality in his dress was the cravat a great bow of black silk that overflowed the lapels of his coat but she had no more than time to register a swift impression of the details when he came quickly forward one hand extended the other holding his cap i cannot tell you how glad i am he exclaimed it was the old Carthel, beyond doubting or denial. Not a single inflection of his low-pitched, gently modulated voice was wanting. Not a single infinitesimal mannerism was changed, even to the little tilting of the chin when he spoke, or the quick winking of the eyelids, or the smile that narrowed the corners of his eyes themselves, or the trick of perfect repose of his whole body. Even his handkerchief, as always, since first she had known him, was tucked into a sleeve at the wrist. "'And so you are back again,' she cried. "'And when? And how?' "'I'm so, yes. So I am, back again,' he repeated as they shook hands. "'Only day before yesterday, and quite surreptitiously. No one knows yet that I am here. I crept in, or my train did, under the cover of night. I have come straight from Tuscany.' from tuscany and gardens and marble pergolas now why any one should leave tuscan gardens and and all that kind of thing for a winter in chicago i cannot see she said it is a little puzzling he answered but i fancy that my gardens and pergolas and all the rest had come to seem to me a little uh, as the french would put it mal i began to long for a touch of our hard harsh city again harshness has its place i think if it is only to cut one's teeth on laura looked down at him smiling i should have thought you'd cut yours long ago she said not my wisdom teeth he urged i feel now that i have come to that time of life when it is expedient to have wisdom i have never known that feeling she confessed and i live in this hard harsh city no that is because you have never known what it meant not to have wisdom he retorted 
Tell me all about everybody, he went on. Your husband, he is well, of course, and distressfully rich. I heard of him in New York, and Page, our little solemn Minerva of Dresden, China. Oh, yes, Page is well, but you will hardly recognize her. Such a young lady nowadays. And Mr. Court, Landry, I remember he always impressed me as though he had just had his hair cut. And the Cresslers and uh, Mrs. Wessels and... Ah, well, Mrs. Cressler will be delighted to hear you are back. Yes, everybody is well. And last of all, Mrs. Jadwin. But I needn't ask. I can see how well and happy you are. And Mr. Corthell, she queried. Is he also well and happy? Mr. Corthell, he responded, is very well and uh, tolerably happy, thank you. One has lost a few illusions, but has managed to keep enough to grow old on. One's latter days are provided for. I shouldn't imagine, she told him, that one lost illusions in Tuscan gardens. Quite right, he hastened to reply, smiling cheerfully. One lost no illusions in Tuscany. One went there to cherish the few that yet remained. But, he added without a change of manner, one begins to believe that even a lost illusion can be very beautiful sometimes, even in Chicago. I want you to dine with us, said Laura. You've hardly met my husband, and I think you will like some of our pictures. I will have all your old friends there, the Cresslers and Aunt Wes and all. When can you come? Oh, didn't you get my note? he asked. I wrote you yesterday asking if I might call tonight. You see, I'm only in Chicago for a couple of days. I must go on St. Louis tomorrow, and shall not be back for a week. Note? No, I've had no note from you. Oh, I know what happened. Curtis left in a hurry this morning, and he swooped up all the mail into his pocket at the last moment. I knew some of my letters were in with his. That's where your note went. But never mind. It makes no difference now that we've met. Yes, by all means, come tonight to dinner. We're not a bit formal. Curtis won't have it. We dine at six, and I'll try to get the others. Oh, but Paige won't be there. I forgot. She and Landry Court are going to have dinner with Aunt Wes, and they're all going to a lecture afterwards. The artist expressed his appreciation and accepted her invitation. Do you know where we live? she demanded. You know we've moved since. Yes, I know, he told her. I made up my mind to take a long walk here in the park this morning, and I passed your house on my way out. You see, I had to look up your address in the directory before writing. Your house awed me, I confess, and the style is uh, surprisingly good. But tell me, asked Laura, you never speak of yourself. What have you been doing since you went away? Nothing. Merely idling and painting a little and studying some thirteenth-century glass in Avignon and Siena. And shall you go back? Yes, I think so, in about a month. So soon as I have straightened out some little businesses of mine, which puts me in mind, he said, glancing at his watch, that I have an appointment at eleven and should be about it. He said good-bye and left her, and Laura cantered homeward in high spirits. She was very glad that Corthell had come back. She had always liked him. He not only talked well himself, but seemed to have the faculty of making her do the same. She remembered that in the old days, before she had met Jadwin, 
her mind and conversation for undiscoverable reasons had never been nimbler quicker nor more effective than when in the company of the artist end of chapter seven part one